0: Parshas Chukas begins with the law of the Paraduma. It's called Parshas Chukas after Zos Chukas atara. This is the law of the Paraduma. There are various, all kinds of Joshas, but simple chat is that the law of Paraduma is described as a Chukah. This is the Parsha we read this week, as well as in Parshas Para of the four Parshas we read during, uh, during Adar. And it's, the, it's the, the description of the laws of the paraduma, the, the heifer, the cow, which is brought and burned, and then the ashes are used to make the, the potion, the water that is sprinkled on people to cure them of the tumah of Tumas Meis. The term chukah in the Torah, chok, chukah, chukas, has the connotation of something mysterious. Chok means a law in general. We, the Torah has several synonyms for law, mishpat, chok, mitzvah. And the term chukah in particular... In rabbinic interpretation, is used to mean a law which is impenetrable, which is difficult to understand. Rashi, right on that first pasuk, Rashi, the the second pasuk, Rashi says right away, "Zos chukas Why are we calling it a chok, a chukah? The Satan and nations of the world, they uh, they tease, they, they they bother the Jewish people. They say, "What is this mitzvah? What reason is there for this?" Therefore, the Torah says, Hashem re-assures us, rahim ilifanai, ain This is a gzera. You have no permission to, to challenge it, to, uh, to judge it, and to weigh its merits. It is a chuka, and I'm, I know that up front, God says, and I'm giving you this mitzvah anyway. It is a chuka. <coughs> it's interesting, because Rashi is singling out Paraduma as the quintessential chok. The Gemara Rashi is alluding to Rashi's language is drawn from a Gemara and Yoma. The Gemara and Yoma is not actually discussing Paraduma. There are actually two Gemaras in the Yoma, but the, the one that Rashi's language is drawn from is not actually discussing Paraduma. It's actually making a broad distinction between two categories of mitzvos in the Torah. The Gemara and Yoma brings a Raysa. Posik, posik says in Vayikra, it says, it says, es mishpatai ta'asu es that it says that you should keep Hashem says we should keep both his chukim and his mitzvahs. <coughs> this, is in, uh, this is in this is in this is in Ches. It says Hashem says we should keep his chukim and his mitzvos. What are chukim and what are mitzvahs? I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, it says we should keep his Mishpatim and his and his chukim. What are Mishpatim? What are Chukim? Mishpat Mishpatim are those things Il Male, Lonihtuvu, Dinushi Kaspu things which are self-evident, we don't even need the Torah to write them to know that they're prohibited, Avodah Zarah, Giliyarayos, Damim, Gazel, Hashem, basic civil law, things like murder and uh, murder and theft, a certain fundamental religious law like idol worship, Gemara includes Giliyarayos, sexual transgressions, which actually are, are debated by the by the later commentaries, whether it, the, the various prohibitions of incest and so on should be seen as chok or, or mishpat, but Gemara here calls it mishpat, Birch HaShem, cursing God. Those are mishpatim, those are things that are obvious, even, with, even without the psukim we would know them. What are chukim? Dvarim Satan Meshavalay? The Satan challenges them, and, and it's, hard to, it's hard to knock down his, his challenge. Achilas Chazir, eating pig. Levisha Shatnei, he's wearing garments of wool and linen. Chalitza Sivama, the Chalitza ritual. Taras Mitzorah, the kind of arcane rituals of purifying a Mitzorah. Sar a very bizarre ritual of, of throwing the goat off the cliff on Yom Kippur. Hashem says, yeah, even though you, you might be tempted to say, these are nonsense, these are, these are silly, Ani Hashem, I made these chukim, and again, Ein Lachar Lahar So this Qumar doesn't actually list paraduma, but it, it clearly divides the mitzvahs into two categories, the chukim and the Mishpatim. The chukim are those that we're faced with challenges to them. We don't have a, a clear answer. We just have to accept, accept them on faith, literally on faith, that Hashem said that these are hukin. With regard to Paraduma in particular, as we see, Rashi moves this Gemara over to Paraduma. With regard to Paraduma, there are a whole set of other statements of Chazal, including a Gemara earlier in Yoma and in other Midrashim, that single out Paraduma for being the ultimate in mystery, the ultimate in paradox. We've discussed this in previous years. Amarti echma vhirachalkemi Solomon the Wise said that I I had ambitions to be wise. I thought I could understand everything. The and ultimate the final level of wisdom, true wisdom, is beyond me. The Gemara darsins is the midrash darsins is about Paraduma. Early in Yoma, there's a whole discussion of the Gemara exactly what aspect of Paraduma is so mysterious. There are certain paradoxical aspects of Yoma of Paraduma that the. That if, that if, according to one opinion, if you use the water on a person who's tame, he indeed becomes tar, but if you use the water on a tar, he becomes tamay. That's Kiva's opinion. <coughs> that sounds very bizarre. According to the haim, there, there are other aspects of the law that are bizarre. So the, the Gemara, there's a Midrashic tradition which singles out Paraduma as uniquely mysterious, as uniquely, uh, uniquely perplexing. But either way, the, broadly speaking, there's the category of chukim, there's the category of mishpatim. The Gemara clearly tells us that there is such a category of Mishpatim, of laws that we would know we would know that these mitzvahs are proper and need to be followed, even had the Torah never never recorded them because they're, the reasons are self evident. They're, they're rational mitzvahs, which are accessible, which are easily accessible to human reason. I want to speak tonight about a related aspect of this discussion. So of course the Tameh mitzvahs, the idea of giving reasons for mitzvahs, both the obvious ones and the less obvious ones, was a subject of major interest to the medieval thinkers. Rambam, Sefer Achinuch, Ramban, spent a lot of time coming up with reasons for all kinds of mitzvahs. Obviously, some are more obvious, like Gezel, or the, the Mishpatim, but even the ones that are Chukim, Shatnez, and Chazir. Rambam does give reasons, does speculate on reasons for those. Rambam has a kind of broad approach that many of these were vestiges of pagan practice, the Torah tells us. He says if you, if you would read as much idolatry and Paganism, as I did, Ramam says, you would, I read every book I can get my hands on, you would understand where all these practices come from, and the great wisdom in the Torah in extirpating them. The Torah, he said, is a victim of its own success. It's because the Torah was so successful in eradicating these ancient cults and practices, that's why they're all so mysterious to us today, because they don't mean anything to us. Because like, what are these? Because the, the people who did this are, are long gone, and the Torah was successful in, in moving the world away from these beliefs. But That's the Rambam's opinion, others have other approaches, Kabbalistic approaches, uh, philosophical approaches, and a variety of approaches to the reasons for mitzvahs. But what I want to discuss tonight is a, a more concrete and practical aspect of the discussion, and that is the question, the, the, the basic question, of is it legitimate to use our understanding of the rationales behind mitzvahs to shape how we do the mitzvah? To We say, the, the Torah says, do this. We speculate, we assume the reason is such and such, And therefore, it applies here, and it doesn't apply here. Therefore, the mitzvah means this and not that. Is that a legitimate approach? So we're going to discuss some of the early Talmudic discussion of this question, as well as a number of practical applications in the later post for can we let our understandings of the rationales of mitzvahs influence and determine how we actually practice the mitzvah. So on the Talmudic level, the the Talmud really addresses this question head-on, the Talmud cites a machlokis In several places in the Talmud, the Talmud cites a machlokis between Rabbi Yehuda and Rabbi Shimon, two of the fa- famous tannaim. The way, the way the Gemara describes the machlokas, the machlokas is, are we durish Talmud Akra or are we not durish Talmud Akra? So literally, durish means to seek out or to investigate. So literally, the machlokas seems to mean, do we try to understand, do we, do we try to propose reasons for mitzvahs understand reasons for mitzvahs or not, you might think that the one who says no, Rebihuda says no, we actually paskin no, that we actually paskin lodershin on Tam and Dekra, that we do not do this. One might think that that means that we don't speculate about reasons at all, that we, we consider the mitzvahs uh, a black box and a, a system that we have no insight into, but that generally is not, uh, is not the accepted view. On one of these gemaras. Tosa says right away that this or or and Rebihuda, the machlokus is when there's ikan nafkusa. When there is some practical ramification, that's the makhlokus about being darish tama dekra, meaning, apparently, meaning, do, can we use our interpretations of the mitzvahs as a guide to interpreting how the mitzvah shall be fulfilled? But in, in general, when there's no nafkusa, just saying, just speculating on reasons, that is not something that, that, that anyone has a problem with. And that certainly was the practice in the medieval period, the, the Rishonim all the time or for reasons for mitzvahs, even though, despite the fact that la we follow the view in the Gemara that says, lo and again, the simple understanding is like Tosfus, that that means that we don't allow it to determine how we practice the mitzvah, but we're certainly free to speculate and to uh, make suggestions as to what the reasons for the mitzvahs are. So the archetypal case where the Tanam argue about whether we're darish dekra is in a relatively uh, obscure mitzvah. It is in the mitzvah of lo yachav ol al it says that the Torah has certain laws that regulate the seizing of collateral by creditors. If a creditor has a debt, an outstanding debt that's not being paid on time, so the creditor has certain rights vis-à-vis you know, having the court execute a judgment against the seize the assets of the debtor and or to seize collateral pending payment to the debt. But the Torah regulates. The Torah has a number of mitzvahs deraisa that regulate how the, the, the that, that restrict and that regulate how the collateral can be seized. They're, they're meant to provide certain what we would call certain rights to the debtors. So again, these may not be the most practical things in our society, but the one example is that they can't take to, you can't take tools, vessels that are used for food preparation, rechaim varachev, the millstones, are the things that were used for food production, because those were considered essential needs of the of the, of the debtor. Another halacha is it says it says that you cannot be chovel beged al mana. You cannot seize the garment of a widow. Why? So, machlokes is between Rabbi Judah and Rabbi Shimon. They argue about whether this applies to a whether this applies to a, uh, to, a to, to a rich widow or a poor widow. So, the halacha is that when you take something from a poor person, you have to keep returning it. Uh, they can only take it at night when he doesn't need it. If he needs it during the day, you take it at night and you return it in the morning. If he needs it at night, it's pajamas, whatever, then you then you return it uh, at night and you take it during the day. If a person is rich and has multiple instances of the item, he doesn't absolutely need yours, then you can keep it and not return it to daily. So, according to the shita that says we're durish time of Dekra, that's should shita, it says, a rich woman we, we can, we may take. The lav is limited to a poor woman because you'll be in and out of her house all the time. There'll be a strange man in and out of her house. She's a widow. Tongues will wag. She'll get a bad reputation. That is the reason the Torah gives. And therefore, that reason only applies to an ania who, who, who you'll have to be trafficking, you know, you'll, you'll have to be, have to be uh, walking in and out of her house all the time, and that'll give her a bad reputation. It'll give you a bad reputation also, I guess, but I guess in many societies, the women suffer more from the mm-hmm. reputation than the man does, but uh, maybe you don't care. It's money, and your money's on the line, but whatever it is, the, we're worried about her reputation, and therefore, that's what we should to The Torah says nothing about reputations or about rumors, the rumor mill and so on, but the, this is what Rabbi Shimon says I assume this is the reason of the Torah, and therefore I act on my assumption, I rule according to my assumption, I limit this halacha to almana aniya. Rabbi Yudas says, I am not Derechtam and therefore I apply it, Echad almana of Echad dashira Echad aniyah, I apply it to all women because I do not impose my understandings of the law on the psukim, and that is, uh, that's, that is the, the core machlokis between Rabbi Hud and Rabbi Shimon, whether we're Doresh, Tam, and Dekra, as Tosa says. The, the point is, because there's nafkus Ladina. there is a, again, this is not the most practical halakha. I can't remember the last time I heard of this halakha being applied, halakha l'maysa, but in theory at least, or in biblical times, in Mishneic times, this, this was a halakha that was presumably lived in a way that it isn't really today. So Mamela, there's a Nafkusel Adina, and that's why Rabbi Shimon is Durish taim and Dekra, and that is why Rabbi Hud is not Durish taim and Dekra. There is a related machlokis in the opposite direction. The Gemara says it says that the king is not supposed to marry too many women, Veloyar nashim. And the Torah says, Why? Because we're afraid, as happened to Shlomo Hamelech, we're afraid that the women will lead him astray from the path of loyalty and worship of God. So, does that apply to only to, to, to bad women, women who have. Uh, Women who have uh, women who have who are going to be uh, who are going to be not righteous who are going to be who are going to lead them astray. Does that apply to all women? Again, the, the, obviously, you can say that we suspect any woman, any, we don't know in advance. But the, the government seems to assume that we have some way of some way of labeling them in advance. A woman who is likely to be a problem. A woman who's not likely to be a problem. In this case, the is just the opposite. Rabbi Shimon says. Rabbi Shimon says that it applies to Rabbi Shimon here sort of is not Darish Dekra. Rabbi Shimon says that this slav applies to any woman, even like Abigail, the righteous Abigail, but who actually prevented David from sinning. But then Rabbiud says no, the reason is Lo Lavavo, it's limited to women who are going to be problems and are going to lead him astray from God. So that sounds like the opposite argument. So the Mar says, yeah, the reason this is different is because here the Torah itself specifies the reason. Rabbiuddha says, normally I'm not Darish Dekra. Normally, I take Sukkot at face value. I don't start imposing my own understandings on the mitzvah and shaping them according to my own, my own understanding. But here, the Torah says, V'lo Yashir If the Torah says, then, then the Torah is giving me license to, to take the reason and run with it. So the Torah says, V'lo Yashir So I limit it to, to Yashir L'Vavu. Rabbi Shimon says, even had the Torah not said, V'lo Yashir I would have assumed that because I'm the one who always assumes time of the cross. I don't even need the Pasuk to say, V'lo Yashir so why did the Torah write that? to tell you that there's two variations of the prohibition. Either La Le Yasser Levavo, then even one, or, uh, or the many women is Osir, even if they're not in La Yasser Levavo, that's Osir, even if, they, even, even, even if they won't be, if there's many of them. I'll call upon them. In general, the rule is, where the Torah does not specify a reason, Rabbi Yehuda says, I'm not willing to impose my own reasons onto the, onto the Pasuk. I take the Pasuk at its broadest, you know, textualist face value. And Rabbi Shimon says, No, it's my job as, a, as, as an interpreter of the Torah to, to say what the reason is, and I will then act, and I will then rule and shape the mitzvah in accordance with what I think the, the, the reason is. La Halacha, as we said, La Halacha, in, in, in these disputes over here, we paskin lie Rabbi Yehuda, that we are not darish Tamadikra. We say when it comes to Begid Al-Mana, we say it's no distinction between, between Ashira and ania. We say we do not impose our own understanding of the Pesukim, and it applies to... All it applies to all women. We are not Darish Dekra, So, the takeaway from this, gemara, from this group of Gemara seems to be that we do not have the right, we do not have the prerogative of using our own understanding of mitzvahs, you know, at least in order to determine how the mitzvah shall be fulfilled. But it's not so simple, because the Risharim and Achrarim then proceed to make subtle distinctions, Talmudic distinctions. Sometimes we do, and sometimes we don't. So one, one interesting point is made by the Shittim HaKubetzis, citing the rush. I'm not sure if that's the same rush as Romaino Usher, the father of the tour, or a different rush. But the, the Shittim HaKubetzis says that this whole is that being Doresh Tam and is only when the reason you're proposing is really not indicated in the psukim themselves, and you want to interpret the mitzvah in a way which involves... The reason might be tempting intellectually, but it's not what the text actually says, and you're going to be reinterpreting the text in a way which is against its plain meanings. For example, the case of the Begit Almana, the Torah doesn't say poor or rich, the Torah just says Almana, any Almana. You want to use your logic to say only a certain kind of almana. You want to be the one to very much read something into the text which does not say there. That we say Lord Joshina and Tamadakra. But in a case where this is the pashte de Krav, where this is the simple and straightforward understanding of the text, that, that, a, that a simple reader would read the text this way, that is entirely legitimate. The example he gives, the, the, his motivation for saying this, is an interesting Gemara in Bab-Mitzia. The Gemara in Bab-Mitzia is talking about, there's a, there's a prohibition in the Torah, lo sachsam shar It is prohibited to muzzle an ax while it is working the grain, while it's trampling and threshing the grain. You, you're not allowed to do that. Tara says, don't muzzle an ox while it, uh, while it threshes. So the Gemara has a discussion. What if it's eating something which is bad for it? It's causing it diarrhea. So it, it might, and the animal doesn't know any better. It, sometimes people don't know any better. We eat things sometimes that are bad for us and cause us health problems. The animal sometimes doesn't know any better. So people say sometimes animals have more of a sense of what's good for it than people. I don't know. But there are times where the animal is eating something which is not good for it. And so, the, so, the, so in, in the in the in the long run, net, you know, it's bad for the animal. Is there a prohibition of losach Shar bedisha or not? So, what are, what what are the arguments for or against? So, the Gemara says, does the Torah say don't muzzle it because it's good wholesome food? It's good for the animal. You can't deprive the animal of wholesome food. This is not wholesome food. It's causing it uh, to suffer. Or do you say? We just look at the superficial pain, the animal the animal is suffering from gazing longingly at the tasty food and it's not getting it. That, that itself is enough of a reason, even if in the long run it's not really good for it. That, that's the question. The Gemara goes back and forth on this question. The, the conclusion of the Gemara is that, that uh, only if the food is good, only if the food is healthy for it, and that's, the, that's, where, that's what it depends on. Says the Shita. says the Rush, why do we saying all these fars for? The Torah says, Lo, Sachs, and Which word don't you understand? What do you mean? It's healthy. It's not healthy. It tastes good. It doesn't taste good. And who asked you for all these uh, who asked the Gemara for all these speculations? The Russians. you see that in a case where the where the, the where the where the reasons are the simple, straightforward reading of the text, anyone who learns as possible about not muzzling an ox is going to assume that it's, it's having some kind of compassion for the animal. So that's a very straightforward reading. That's not importing some kind of speculative uh, speculative meaning into the Psukim. And that the the, the Sheetamuketsa says everyone agrees. Everyone agrees that we are able to be darish de kara. The question is again, which is it? Is it the, the healthiness of the, the wholesomeness of the food, or the tastiness of the food? That we can debate. But clearly, it is in some sense based on the, the good of the animal, and therefore that's a, so. The so, so this, this this is a, a big deal. The, the the sheet is telling us that everyone agrees we can be darish de kara when it's completely in line with the simple reading of the text. It's a, it's not a speculation. It's not something that we're in, that we're kind of bringing in a, a fanciful or speculative approach. It reads very well with the psukim. That everyone agrees that we do do. The machlok is a reading of Mishim, the case where we pass in Lodoshin and Tamadakra is like the rich and the poor widow, which is, uh, again, you to start worrying about the reputation. It's something which is not really in the text, it's something which is, to a certain extent, speculative. That's the machlok, is that we don't do, but something which, is, uh, which which is much more in line with and consistent with the text, that is something that everyone agrees that we, everyone agrees that we do. Rabbi Okolatskin develops this idea, a great Polish Akron from a century ago. He, he, he works very much with this idea, and he points out, particularly in areas of Dene Mominus, and areas of civil law, which are certainly, he says, based on logic and reason when it comes to Dene Mominus. We, the, 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 the bedrock assumption is that the Torah is trying to, that the Torah is articulating some kind of notion of equity, of, of, of balancing of rights and fairness and so on. So, of course, he says it has to be based on Svara, and certainly when we're dealing in those kinds of contexts, obviously, he says, we're going, to, we, we, we're, going to, we're going to approach parashat mishpatim, that's, again, the distinction is between chukim and mishpatim, we're going to approach parashat mishpatim very much with the assumption that mishpatim are supposed to be fair. Mishpatim are supposed to be fair, and we have the right, certainly, to interpret various laws in parashat mishpatim on, on the assumption that they're supposed to be fair. In, in, in my family, we, we have a kind of long-running... Uh, discussion, debate with with Arav or Mishra reisman about uh, fairness as a Torah value. To to put it in context, he he gets a little frustrated sometimes with with people who challenge things he says, challenge things the Gemara says by saying, I don't think that's fair or that's not fair. So he he likes to shoot back at them. Who said fairness is the Torah value? Who said the Torah is fair? The Torah is not about fairness. My father always said, oh, what do you mean the Torah is not about fair? The whole, the whole, the whole, the the MS, that, are, these, these are, these are all values. These are all, these all represent different aspects of fairness. Again, I, I don't think on a deeper level there's, such, there's really such a, so that much daylight here. The point is that yes, you know, we, we, we can all agree that the Torah's notions of fairness are not always going to be those that every person's intuition is going to say, that's what I think is fair. People can have very different uh, we can have very different ideas of fairness. It's one, one of us are, will be right, one of us will be wrong even if we both feel very strongly that our our position is fair. That's why we have a Torah, to tell us sometimes what's fair. So yeah, but I, I think it's clear the Torah has a notion of fairness. That's really O'Klotskin's point that he says, Mishpateh Torah are not chukabalma, he says. Certainly, there they has to be based on tam and Svara, It has to be based on, on logic. And I would go one step further and say the logic is based on equity, on fairness. So certainly, so certainly, this is the idea that some Akronim are telling us that the whole debate about whether we have the right to interpret laws based on, uh, based on, on Svara is, is when the Svara is more of a speculation, but when the Svara is just logical and kind of you know, very based in the text and the, and, and the law itself, this is less of a problem with using some some fundamental notions of fairness to interpret, or, or logic, or svara, to interpret the, the mitzvah. There is a interesting discussion. I saw a week or two ago there was a little mini scandal brewing in Israel. So there there was a campaign to promote observance of the laws of Tarz meshpacha, the laws of nida. So that they so they they had influencers, celebrities, influencers. Apparently, influencers are what they call the celebrities today. They're, they're celebrities who are primarily famous just for influencing people, not because they have kind of native or latent uh, talent sometimes, but yeah, they, they, they paid various uh, celebrities and influencers to talk about how they personally started keeping of Mishpacha, and it was so wonderful for them. And then people then, they hadn't initially disclosed they were being paid to do this, and obviously when people found that out, there was uh, there was a lot of uh, yelling and screaming. A good time was had by all, and the, but the, the interesting thing was that some of these celebrities, some of these women who were talking about keeping tars and the ones I saw were all women. I think mostly women. I think they, they were saying things like it was so good for our marriage. It was uh, there is there's great wisdom in these laws. It 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 it, 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 it promotes a very healthy uh, very healthy uh, family dynamic. So it's interesting. The, the, the question that, that interested me, to a large extent, besides the Kosh Mishpat questions of not disclosing that there was compensation involved, what I was particularly interested in is that this is a question, I guess, that the Kirib rabbis have to address, but is, is this, should we push mitzvahs? Should we kind of promote mitzvahs based on you know, reasons, things that we think we can benefit from. Shabbos, people sometimes talk about, how, oh, it's a great time to recharge, a digital Sabbath they talk about, it's so great to have a day without uh, connectedness and just uh, be present and with your family. So yeah, th- these may be some of the reasons of mitzvahs like Shabbos or Nidah, but is it appropriate to, to kind of sell the mitzvahs, to focus on, on the mitzvah based on these reasons or not? With regard to Nidah in particular, this is actually uh, this, this discussion has a very long and interesting history. The idea that Nida is motivated by a desire to improve uh, marital health actually goes back to the Gemara. The, the, the Gemara, the Tanoim, actually actually mention this idea. There is a Gemara in Nida. The Gemara says, it gives reasons for various mitzvahs and various practices, and it says one of the things the Gemara says is a the mayor says, why did the Torah say that Nida has to be tamei has to be separate from her husband for seven days? So the Gemara says, it sounds like something out of a uh, modern uh, popular marriage manual, it says the person gets used to his wife and, and he gets tired of her. The Torah says, let her be separate from him for seven days. When they get back together, she'll be once again beloved to him. The absence makes the heart grow fonder, the separation improves his, uh, his, his desire for her, and it actually it's actually good for marital harmony that's what a few of these celebrities were saying. It's great to have them set to be separate for a few days. It, it 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 works wonders for the for the matrimonial dynamic. Yes.
1: I didn't want to interrupt your sentence. You're only mid sentence. Are you finished?
0: Um, uh, okay. Yeah, I can stop okay. here. I
1: think so. Yeah. Um, those two concepts that you were talking about, you know, especially with the Kirin movement, it, you have to like, especially with Kieru, you have to start somewhere into making it attractive, because once the person becomes involved in it see the more spiritual benefits of it. You know, things that you don't have... Like, and what you're talking about there, that there's no real you know, should you give, rationalize a mitzvah they'll go be... At some point they'll go beyond that and realize that there's more to it than just the rationalization but you've got to start somewhere. That's
0: fair. That's an important point. Linda, I think, is alluding also to the famous uh, rabbinic rabbinic dictum, mitoshalolishma, bolishma, that when we try to motivate people religious or not, kids, whatever, we do motivate by Shalom We give prizes for kids. We give candy. We give other things of value. So we do that. And with understanding that the person will eventually grow beyond it and realize the more substantial reasons, more substantial benefits. Yeah, so that's, you know, your point is that even if, this is, even if we don't accept this as the real reason or the ultimate reason, it's not bad to, to promote this as a hook. As, as an early reason, it's not worse than Shalom L'Shema. Uh, yeah, that's a good point. I'm just using this kind of as a springboard to discuss whether this is actually the real reason or not. So the Remair in Abrisa says this is this is the reason. He, he says in Abrisa this is the reason that Nizza promotes uh, marital harmony. So Rabiakov Reischer, one of the great uh one of the great of early Poland of several hundred years ago, one of the one of the greatest authorities on underdea. So the author of the, the Chok Yaakov and Hilchus Pesach, the, the Tarz and Minchas Yaakov on Yer, Yerideah, and other things, one, one of the greatest uh, post on Yeridea among the Akronim. So he wrote, he, he wrote a comment which aroused some controversy. In the beginning of Hilchus Nida, so the Shulchan Aruch, the Rama, brings from the Rishonim, Nida applies equally to married and single women. There's no difference. The, all the stringencies of Nida apply equally to both. The Chok Yaakov says... I'm not sure about that, he says. Maybe not. He says, according to this, Bryce that the reason for Nida is to promote uh, healthy marriages. So maybe for a single woman, this, this wouldn't apply, and maybe the laws of Nida would be more lenient, or would be more circumscribed, and wouldn't apply to single women, he wrote. He immediately walked that back. He immediately said, but the post came mash Mashma like that. And he said, "This this gemara nida. It's a of Alma. Chazal said a lot of things as drashas. We shouldn't we we, we can't, can't get carried away with everything Chazal said in the form of Agadah. Not There's no halakhic content here, and, and I wouldn't go. I wouldn't be so quick to do this. He says, and the psukim do seem to indicate. There's no difference. The and the tarin, don't indicate that nida is limited to a married woman. Furthermore, he suggests maybe Ruby Mayer follows the sheet of Rabbi Shimon, who is Duresh Kam and Dekra, and we don't pass him like that, he says. So for a variety of reasons, he says he, he's not Machalik, but he floated this trial balloon, so to speak. He proposed in, a, in, in one stage of his discussion that the laws of Nida wouldn't apply as, uh, as stringently to a single woman. Rebjonesen Eipstutz, in his Crazy Uplacy, his work on Eredea, was furious. Rebjonesen Rabbi, Rabbi Eipstutz felt that saying such things was, was the height of irresponsibility, of course, it could lead people to not be strict about neither with single women, people who are, you know, unattached. Uh, the that so the you know, the Torah is against promiscuity to begin with, but the one of the one of the most stringent tshuva involved if, if, if two unmarried people are together, is going to be Nida. And uh, if people are going to get the idea that Nida really is only for married women, and are going to start being lenient and with touching and more serious things, intimacy between between single single women, that would be uh, that would be terrible. Shaviyazen Aipschitz was just a pull beyond words. He said, uh, what Rama says, that Niza applies equally to married and single women, is Pashud and burr. nobody would have any such doubt. He says, what the, what the Minchas Yaakov wrote, he says, he says, he, was, he, he, he placed a tremendous michshol for those who are irresponsible, and Rishayim, he says, by even floating such a trial balloon, he doesn't even, like, he doesn't accept the fact that he said, la it's not like that. The fact that he even proposed such a thing, he says, is just such a terrible, terrible thing to say. May God forgive him, he says, and bringing the Gemara. Of course, the Gemara is a drusha, The Gemara has no halachic significance, he says. He points out the same Gemara that says, the same Gemara that says that Nida is because of uh, marital harmony. It says that the reason we wait eight days for doing brismila so some people say it's for health reasons, for other reasons, give the baby a chance to just, uh, you know, recover from the, from the birth. But the Gemara gives a different reason. The Gemara says that in the, in, the time, in the time of Chazal, this seems very alien to us, but in the time of Chazal, it seems that a woman was ready for intimacy with her husband, was physically ready you know, a few days after birth. The halacha says she had the status of Anita, so she has to wait seven days. But a week after birth, uh, the assumption was the husband and wife can get back together again. Today, the doctors recommend weeks, I think, after a typical delivery, but uh, without, uh, without that kind of physical intimacy. But it sounds like in Chazal's time, they were life was shorter, they had, you know, were tougher, whatever it was, but they, they weren't as concerned. Uh, it, it's only the halachas of Nida that, that kept them apart for a week or for two weeks for a nekeva. So the, so the Gemara says, the reason a bris is on the eighth day is because for the first week, the husband and wife are, are sad or they're deprived of each other's, uh, each other's company, of each other of intimacy. It says, it's only by the, by the eighth day they can get back together. So they're happy, to, they're happy as well. So we make the bris on the eighth day because, because this way they'll be basimcha the way everyone else is basimcha as well. Okay, so the Rebunas and Ibschid says, azay, we, we, the, the halakhs of Tuma we follow, the, you know, a woman who gives birth in certain conditions, has longer dina Tuma. We, we, we always treat ourselves, even, even without the doctors, we, we, we anyway treat a woman as being Tumah for you know, full-blown nidza with counting Zayim which takes longer. You're going to push off the mila, he says, you're going to push off the mila until the woman becomes Tahora. Of course not, whoever heard of such a thing, he says, uh, that's ridiculous. These Gemaras are drushes. he says, these Gemaras are are kind of homiletical interpretations of the mitzvahs, so they have no halachic weight, he says. No one in his right mind is going to start uh, regulating the halacha and making distinctions and making the rules based on these gemaras. He says, these are drushes. No- nobody should take them seriously, or I mean, seriously, but nobody should take them halachically seriously to the point of establishing halachas in this, he says. And furthermore, he says, he says to-, to write what he wrote, to write what the, what Rav Yaakov Raisha wrote is... It's just an error that his pen slipped, and he wrote such a terrible thing. He says, "But chalila to entertain such a thing." This basic point was already made by the Truma Sedeshin. Truma Sedeshin also brings this gemara that the reason you do mila on the eighth day is because that, that's when the woman is finally tahora and back to her husband. He says, "That's a drasha. We don't we don't we don't we don't establish halacha based on that." And the way he starts his tshuva, he, he has an interesting cheshbon. He says, "We don't do we don't wear tefillin on Shabbos." Why? So, Yomar says, because tefillin is called an os, a sign between os and Hashem, Shabbos is called an os, so the, the way some Rishonim, and we don't, we don't need the os of tefillin on Shabbos, which is also an os, or Yom Tov, which is also an os. The debate about tefillin on Chalamoid is about whether Chalamoid is called an os as well or not. So, the, the way some Rishonim understood this din, they understood a person needs two osos always, like two adim, we always have two adim in halacha, at a wedding or whatever, so, you have to have two osos. So, a person, mila is also an os. Bris Mila's an os. So, during the week, you have Mila plus Tfilim. On Shabbos, you have Mila plus uh, Shabbos. He says the Truman Sadeshin. And what if someone can't have Mila? What if someone has a medical condition? He can't have Mila. It's too dangerous. So, then the says, of course, Mila's not Doch nafesh. If A person can't have Mila, then he doesn't have Mila. Are you going to tell me that he wears Tfilim on Shabbos to try to get his second os? No, he says. It doesn't work like that. These drushas that Hazal made, these are. I don't know, they're drush, they're inspiring, they, they teach us uh, philosophical truths, however you understand them, but, but certainly we can't go off and start uh, modifying halacha based on these sorts of drushes. So this is kind of the flip side of the point we made earlier. Earlier we said that, there are, that on the one hand, in the middle we have the machlokis or bihudin, or shimon, Are we derish tamadikra for practical significance? Are we not duresh tamadikra? We mentioned that in cases where the Tamadakra is so natural and so logical, and so it dovetails so well with the text, everyone is in cases where it's, where it's drush and it's, it's something which is very much removed from the Pashti Dekra, it's, it's very fanciful, there the, these posts come out telling us, there's no nobody's going to be drush Tam and nobody's going to, I think they mean nobody's going to be darish this, not even Rav could be nobody's going to say that we're going to start establishing halacha based on these various midrashim, because because, be, be, because these reasons are not explicitly explicit enough in the psukim, these reasons are much more conjecture and much more fanciful, and therefore I, I think they mean to say, everyone's going to say, we're not going to establish halacha based on these types of reasons, certainly not according to and maybe even not according to B'shim. The Villanagon, the Villanagon had a very, he doesn't really articulate it himself so clearly, but there are various traditions in the name of the Villanagon that he had a very strong position that we have no right to start modifying the, even Dine drabanan of Chazal, when they told us the reason, perhaps effort yori, Dinei Daraisa, we have no right to start saying, well, this is the reason, so it doesn't apply. So the Gondon, for example, there are a number of halachas in the Gemara that many people have the minag not to do, and the reason given is because times have changed and things are different, and the Gon did not like that. So one of them was Maya The Goan was, was quite vehement about the need to do Maya The reason many Ashkenazim don't do Maya is because the Rishonim said, we don't have melakstomis, because I'll worry about a certain kind of toxic salt, and we don't have that kind of salt. Sim- similar thing for Maya Megulim. The Gemara says that water, drink, beverages that were exposed, were left exposed, were considered dangerous to consume because snakes could have injected some venom. A snake could have drunk from it and left some venom in the water. Tosa says that we don't have those kind of snakes in, in Europe, and it, this is not a problem for us. So the, we're, we typically are lenient to Melmayim Megulim. Many people are leaning to Melmayim Mehronim. The Villegon was very much opposed to these types of arguments. The Villegon said that if something says in the Talmud, we should accept it. We shouldn't start, uh, we shouldn't start coming up with, uh, with reasons to do away with things in the Gemara. The question is why not? I mean, it seems very logical to say that if the reason doesn't apply, we don't need to do it. So there are different versions of what the Gon said. You know, certain things the Gon the Goan felt were just rationalizations. Like for example, the Gon was very much a, very much opposed to those who were lenient about to Berchadosh and Yashan, the Minigan as was to make Here, the Gon's position is easy to understand. But as we've discussed several times, the, the leniencies were based on Shatrach, and they came up with all kinds of clever arguments, but they were ultimately rooted <coughs> in the idea that it was very, very difficult. And the Gon felt that we should you know, be faithful to the the Iker halacha. But these other examples make a lot of sense to be leaning to. If there's no snakes, why should we be so worried about uh, leaving water exposed? If there are no Melechdomus, why should we be so worried about uh, Mayimachron? So there are different reasons that the Goan or his followers attributed to him about why exactly he was so fundamentalist about keeping these halachas. But one version of the gon is, what one version of the tradition is, that the gon said, we don't always know the reasons. Even if Chazal gave us reasons, there could have been other reasons that we don't know about, and it's the tip of the iceberg. Very hard to understand how that works, because certainly when Chazal gave us reasons, Postma are full of logic and distinctions based on the reasons. We, we, when Chazal gave us a reason, so we apply, you know, the Hilchas Bishlachum and Chal of Yisrael are full of halachas that are based on where the reasons apply, where the reasons don't apply. So I don't know how far the gun would take this, but, but the gun is said to have taken a very, a very fundamentalist view about this, that we don't have the right to start uh, changing halachas based on our assumptions about when reasons do or don't apply. If the, if the Gemara says a din, then the din applies, and we, we can't just say, well, you know, the reason doesn't apply, so we're going to be more lenient to it. Well, what about Havim? I
1: mean, like it's, it's a German manhag not to do my minhagin, so is that... So do these sometimes, these minahagim, he's saying that they
0: shouldn't have these minahagim? So the, the, the would have certainly would have had less of a problem with a Minag that develops independently of the Gemara. In the case where the Minog runs against the Gemara, that's where he has a hard time. Again, almost all popes can agree, that in some cases you have to defer to the Minog. We discussed not a little while back, the Minog in Ashkenaz was not to do berachos Galanam on a daily basis. And the gunwars, according to the story, the gunwars did not like that, because it's, it's a, it's a Minag that has no Talmudic basis, and it's against the simple reading of the Talmud and the Torah, and again, we don't have, the gun. didn't write himself much on the topic, but it seems that the gun was not happy with that for the same reason, because he felt that a minhag, as venerable as it is, the gun was very much a, uh, a Talmudic fundamentalist, in a good sense, I, mean, I don't mean in a bad sense, but the gun was very much, uh, very much believed in Talmudic supremacy, and very much believed that we should be justifying and reconciling our practices with the Talmud, and uh, we should place more emphasis on the primary sources like the Talmud, and less established practice. That being said, even the Gon would have uh, not always been opposed to every Minug. He himself, apparently, made some efforts to change the custom, but ultimately didn't. Ultimately gave, gave them up, but based on divine signs or whatever, his Talmud when they went to Israel, they changed the Minug back to uh, the old Minug. So, yeah, so the things like Mayimachronim, there was a, a Minug not to do it, but I guess the Gon felt that it was never quite settled, even in Ashkenaz, and there were, there were, there were those who went both ways, and it was, it was, it was still a, a living debate, so to speak, so he, that you know, This takes us back to, you know, to stare decisis and all that about uh, you know, how, how strong does a Minug have to be before a POSIC will say, you know, even if I would have thought otherwise, I, I defer to the Minug, so to speak. So it, 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 it's, it's a complex topic, and it's one that we've touched on many times. So virtually all post can agree, except for you know, some really radical fundamentalists, that a, a Minug has at least some weight, and that at some point, if a Minug is so strong, like, like one of my favorite examples is the, is the Berches Galatum example, where the reasons are exceedingly weak, but uh, mostly, but... Virtually all Ashkenazi posts come outside Israel have have accepted the minhag and have said that that it's, the minhag is so strong by now that we, that we let it go. People argue sometimes that, for example, the the Hasidim don't sing the circle on Shemini which is against an explicit gemara. So it's the and they're, they're, they're attacked for it by by the non-Hasidish. But again, their their position is by now they have a minhag and it's uh, yeah. So it's a complex topic. When when, when do we decide to follow a minhag against the gemara? When not the gun in general was intended to be. Uh, tended to be very much a Talmudical supremacist. He believed that ver- very much weight should be given to the Talmud. And the point, the, the point we're looking at now is that even in cases where the, the reasons given by the Talmud for deraisa or for Gerobanan might not apply, the Goen still felt that you know, that the Talmud should be given so much weight, that the law, that the ultimate holding of the Talmud should be given so much weight that even, even reasons the Talmud itself gives shouldn't be always uh, dispositive, shouldn't always determine how we interpret the halacha, that we have to, the, the law is what counts, the law that we were given is, is fundamental, the tamadikra is inspirational, but, but it's not, ultimately can't establish the law. I want to just discuss one last case, one fascinating case, which is uh, a, a very, very interesting philosophically and was even relevant to me practically a little while ago, and that is shiluach hakein. Shiluach hakein is a very picturesque mitzvah of sending away the mother bird and taking the chicks or the eggs for yourself. Mitzvah say to do it, Mitzvah not to not to do it the wrong way, there's a major machlokas as to the motivation, the the, the rationale for the mitzvah. Some rishonim understood that the reason is compassion. It's a it's a, it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's associated with starbalachaim. That it's if you're taking the eggs anyway, don't do it while the mother is watching and the mother is uh, experiencing agony over the over the over the taking of her progeny. At least send her away so she won't have to actually watch while you take the while you take the eggs of the chicks. That's the opinion of Rambam in the Mardin In the Yad. He contradicts himself a little bit about this, but in the Mardin he explains this at length. Rambam says something similar. The Ramban says it may not be because God cares about the birds per se, but it's pedagogical. God wants us. God God wants us to develop habits of compassion and of sensitivity. But broadly speaking, Rambam and the Ramban say similar things. Some some of the other Rishonim say similar things. Shilochah Cain is about compassion. The Mishnah, the Mishnah and Brachos famously says so we don't let people say that according to one opinion of the Gemara that's because we don't accept that compassion is the reason for the mitzvah so the Rambam discusses that it's a perhaps he says but the bottom line is without getting too deeply into the, into the technicalities that the, the, the position of the Rambam and the Ramban is that Shiloh HaKain is based on compassion the Kabbalists have a very different reason. The Kabbalists say that by take, that it's just the opposite. We want to arouse uh, agony in the bird. We want to arouse maternal uh, stress in the bird. And the bird cries out, and God, this somehow influences God, causes God to have compassion on us. We're his children, and we're also suffering. This is supposed to somehow have to do with... Uh, it's, it's, it's a way of uh, somehow asking a Baruch Hu, inducing HaKadosh Baruch Hu to have Rachmanus on us and Guls. So, there is a Machlach Sachronim whether in the Chazal people needed eggs. People needed birds and needed eggs and you, you found a nest. You wanted to take the eggs or the chicks. You took it and you avoid and, and you send away the mother. What if you don't really need the, the chicks or the, or the baby birds, which is the common scenario today. Most people who do Shiloh HaKain today don't really have much use for the eggs or the chicks. They do it in order to get the mitzvah or the skula, or whatever it is, the mitzvah and or the skula. So, if a person passes a nest and doesn't want the chick, should he do shiloh Okay? This is an old machlokus going back hundreds of years to among the achronim. Some achronim say, yes, it's a mitzvah, you should always do it. Some achronim say, no, the mitzvah is, if you want to take the chicks, so do it in this way, and don't, uh, don't, add, don't aggravate the mother. The chassim selfer says that this machlokis is really ultimately hinges on how you understand the mitzvah. If you understand the mitzvah as rooted in compassion, of course you shouldn't go out of your way and torture the poor birds. If you need the chicks, so minimize the suffering, just like Shita. If you if you need to eat meat, so kill the so some, some say that you kill the animal in a relatively painless way. That's the reason for shechita. But certainly, to go around shechting animals for no reason would be ridiculous. I mean, he doesn't bring this much, I think, but same idea. Mm-hmm. Shiloh HaKain, the says, of course you shouldn't do Shiloh HaKain, according to the Rambam, if you don't need the chicks. Why would you... You're trying to show compassion by going away and torturing a poor bird and saying, well, I didn't do it in front of you? That's perverse. That makes no sense at all, he says. According to the M'kubal, and the, the whole point is to uh, do this act of arousing compassion in mothers and Kosh Baruch Then you should do what he says. Says the Chasim Sofer... Halacha follows nigla, not nistar. Halacha follows the revealed Torah. Whenever there's a conflict, we, we, we follow the revealed Torah, not the hidden Torah. Therefore, a person should not do shiluah hakein if he does not want the, the chicks or the, or the birds. Rosh, Rosh, Rosh Weiss says, it's a big chiddush, that's deKra. You're, you're telling me that the halacha is not to do the mitzvah because you have a speculation about the reason, the reason of Rachmanus. Can you really do that? So he, he, he thinks the Chassam Sofer is a tremendous chiddush to say that we're actually going to influence this, this, this serious halachic question based on Tam Nevertheless, Rav Asher Weiss, because he, because he admits it is a machlov sachronim, Rav Asher Weiss actually recommends, even though in one of his articles he writes the meaning is to do it based on the Zohar, but in one of his tshubas he says you should not do it. If you don't want the birds, you should leave it alone. Because there are some achronim who say that you really shouldn't, unless you need the birds, you really shouldn't. I had a case where there was a bird's nest across the street from me, and we had to decide whether to do shiloh hakein. So I, I did not do it. I, I said, I am not going to do it, because I am very sympathetic to the approach of the Chassam Sofer and the Rosh Weiss and I think the Rachmanis is, mm-hmm. and this is perverse. My wife asked me if she should do it, and I said yes. And she asked me why, and I said, because most Poskim say you should. So unless you have a strong conviction, <laughs> I, I recommend you follow the opinion of most postkim. I personally feel a strong, very strong affinity for this view, which is the view of some major acronym, and Rosh Weiss. says this is his recommendation, also in one of the fifth tshuvas, so I personally did not do it.